May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always accepted in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. To be here at uh, Church of the Good Shepherd with the saints gathered, especially on this most holy day, and, and to be here with Reverend Sarah as well. So great a salvation. So perfect a sacrifice. In the waning days of the first century, Roman poet and dramatist named Quintus Horatio Flaccus wrote, giving young playwrights of his day some much-needed advice. Plays in that time were convoluted. They were confusing and with several complicated and sometimes even contradictory plots. Themes and characters just that didn't make sense. It was customary in the last act of the play when it was impossible to reconcile all of the tangled characters, plots, and circumstances for playwrights to simply write in the appearance of one of the gods, Apollo or Zeus, to magically wrap up all those loose ends before the final curtain fell. Horatio thought that this was a rather predictable and anticlimactic practice. His advice to young playwrights was this, do not put a god on the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a god to solve it. We see today in all of our readings that's exactly what we need. The one true God intervened. He stepped onto the stage to solve the problem of sin and judgment as only He could do. Hebrews, and I'm going to be sort of looking at the Hebrews passage that we had as, an, as our epistle lesson, has this theme throughout. It's the superiority of the person, offices, and work of Jesus. Jesus, superior over the Mosaic law, the Levitical priesthood, over the angels, temples, over the old covenant sacrifices, and that's what chapter 10 deals with a great deal. Jesus, superior over sin. You know, I'm indebted to Mike Atkins, who's uh, my friend. In those years that I got to serve with him, I got to hear several times his teachings regarding the cross. I sat under at least a dozen times a very specific teaching called the centrality of the cross, and it transformed much of my thinking about the cross of Jesus. Sarah and I were blessed to sit in on a video production of several years back, uh, just down the road here, and, uh, and got to see that. Uh, one Mike sort of present this and put it on into a video teaching. And uh, Mike's teaching, it was about six hours long. Fret not. Uh, I'm not going to go that long. But I want to pull from a few things uh, from what he, some, some of the point, not so much the points he made, but at least the outline that he used. Because uh, Mike drew from, I'm going to draw from him, and that's only right because he drew from a noted Anglican scholar, John Stott, who wrote a book, uh, that I would commend to you called The Cross of Christ. I think it's a must-read for any follower of Jesus. Why is the cross important? What was at stake? I'll tell you. Why is the cross important? We were at stake. Why is the cross important? The cross of Christ is the salvation of sinners. You know, we've been singing the song the last few years, at least where I'm out. I might have even done it here when I've been here before, but it's, um, a, simple, it's a wonderful hymn-like song, but it's a recent hymn written called Christ Alone. 
And there's a verse, actually, in that hymn that people sometimes will object to. Just a a few lines where it says, uh, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. People don't like that idea that that the wrath of God had to be satisfied. But that's really the first point I want to make. And the theological term here, we're going to look at four terms in this. The theological term is propitiation. And that is that Jesus took our place. And the wrath, and he suffered the wrath of God because of sin. Sin has to be dealt with. There's no salvation. There's no redemption. So propitiation is a very important uh, concept for us to grasp when we think about the cross. It deals with substitutionary atonement. And it basically it refers to Jesus dying as a substitute for sinners. He took our place. And without Christ, without that redemptive act of Christ, we would die in sin and be destined for hell. He took God's wrath upon Himself for our sin. Hebrews begins, if you were to read the first part of chapter 10, it begins with a a declaration of the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Through animal sacrifices, the sin debt of a person was paid. But this system of ritual animal sacrifice was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to... It never could be. It was never able to remedy the real problem that we have. And that is a sacrifices sacrifices and insufficient. They're temporary an interim measure. Sacrifices had to be repeated daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. And the repetition itself proves their inadequacy. These sacrifices were to remind Israel, they were to remind us, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The sacrifices of bulls and goats never take away sin. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. He took our place. Not only is He the Lamb of God, but you know this well here, He is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. So propitiation is important. We need to understand that this needed to happen for us to be saved, for the salvation of sinners to be accomplished. The next uh, term I want to use is justification. Something we've heard a lot if, in terms of if you've read through the Scriptures, especially through the New Testament. And justification is a legal term. The guilty are proclaimed innocent. Righteous. We are justified. And justification is an act. It's not a process. It's not something that you sort of grow into. You become, you're justified. Completely and fully. No one is more justified than another. When we are justified, we are made right. I remember as, a, as growing up, I heard this phrase, justified just as if I'd never sinned. And that's really what it means. See, under the Old Testament covenant, righteousness came by behavior. In the New Testament covenant, righteousness comes by believing. We are justified. There's a picture that we had, and that Jubilee year was on the 50th year 
Debts were forgiven. Slaves were set free. And it was a picture of really what just, you know, things were made right. Things were justified in that moment. Michael Card, one of my favorite singer and songwriters, has a song called Jubilee. And it really sums up justification nicely in a little bridge of it. It goes, to be so completely guilty and given over to despair, to look into a judge's face and see a Savior there. We are justified. We are made right in our relationship with God. And it's a pronouncement that we have because Jesus went to the cross. So not only does He take our place, not only are we justified, but we come to a place where we are redeemed. Redemption, that's a market term. The practice of reclaiming property by purchasing it. We redeem all sorts of things. We redeem coupons and stamps. I think one of the movies, at least I see it regularly on cable, The Shawshank Redemption is about an innocent man who goes to prison and through this whole story, he comes about to a point of redemption, the Shawshank Redemption. His life is redeemed from prison. Yesterday morning, what has become a regular part of my Holy Week, at least the last seven or eight years, has been to attend what's called the Celebration of Prayer. It's a prayer breakfast on Maundy Thursday every year, put on by the YMCA. And uh, they bring in wonderful speakers. And yesterday, they brought in someone that may might be familiar to you. Um, her name is Elizabeth Smart. And she was kidnapped in uh, 2002. And lived, uh, was kidnapped and was raped and was brutally treated for nine months. And she talked about it, you know, when she was sharing her story, and I was moved to tears when she was talking. And she was sharing her story. She talked about how, you know, when she, when she first got, when that first happened, you know, there will be a search. And then people sort of lose track, and a while later, they'll find a body. And she thought that's where she was going to be. That's how her life was going to end. But with faith, with prayer and people praying for her from all over the world. Nine months later, her life was redeemed. She was found. A brave woman now. And it just was it was this moment where she talked about in those moments of doubt, those moments of fear, those moments of wondering if she was ever going to make it back. She held on. And out of it her life was redeemed. So redemption is important. And I, I think of a lot of songs. I think most of you know that I'm a musician, and so I think of songs lots of times. And that Michael Card song actually has a verse that goes, The Lord provided for a time for the slaves to be set free, for the debts to all be canceled, and so His chosen ones could see. His deep desire was for forgiveness. He longed to see their liberty. And His yearning was embodied in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, Jubilee, Jesus is our Jubilee. Debt's forgiven, slaves set free. Jesus is our Jubilee. Think of when I think about that, that Jesus is my Jubilee. That He redeems my life. Debt's forgiven, slaves set free. What an amazing thing this cross of Christ that accomplishes that in my heart. I think of another little chorus that I 
grew up playing and singing and, and those. It goes like this. He paid a debt. He did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. We are redeemed. Glory in that this day. Why is it a Good Friday? You look at the cross, you might scratch your head and go, why do we call this Good Friday? We call it good because we are justified. We are redeemed. Christ took our place. Final term to look at is we are reconciled. There's a reconciliation that takes place. It's a relational term. Those things that were divided, that were separated, that were far off, are brought close in union. Bringing together of two parties that are estranged in dispute and exchange of antagonism for goodwill, enmity for friendship, hostility ceases. And the effects of the reconciliation upon the injured party in these instances, the offenders confess their fault, offer reparation, and seek forgiveness. That's the way reconciliation usually takes place. But we are unable to reconcile. We can't do it. We can confess. We can seek forgiveness. But we can't make reparations. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. God does this in sending His Son. And at the cross I'm reconciled and the gulf is bridged in Jesus. And the removal of alienation created by my sin happens. And that's the work of God. So we can talk about this idea of substitutionary atonement, of propitiation. We can talk about justification. We can talk about redemption. We can talk about reconciliation. But what does it all mean? In, the last, in these verses, last verses that we heard read from Hebrews chapter 10, we see that to us, one is some responsibilities and we also have some privileges. A couple of privileges that come to us. One is that we have boldness to come before the throne of God because of Christ and His cross. Well, that word there is really confidence. We approach the God of the universe, not timid, not afraid of wrath, but with courage and joy, assured of our acceptance, like hopeful children entering our Father's study for conversation, companionship, consultation, and comfort. We have access to God's presence. Galatians 4 reminds us this way, but when the time had come, God sent forth His Son to redeem those so that, he might so that we might receive adoption. And because we are sons and daughters, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so through God, you are no longer a slave, but you're sons and daughters. And if sons and daughters, then you're also an heir. See, we have closeness with God. We have intimacy with God. And we can come with boldness before the throne of God. The second privilege that we have is that we have a great high priest. In the Old Testament, the priest was the mediator between God and man. Jesus is now our mediator. 
He stands on behalf making intercession for us. He brings us to the Father. He makes a way. He is our advocate, our mediator. And we have not only these privileges that Hebrews points us to, but we have some responsibilities. And they all begin with, let us. First, let us draw near to God. We've already talked about that, but that we can, we can do that because of the positional satisfaction that Christ has won for us by His cross. The separation is done away with. We have access to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us draw near. Something we're encouraged to do. Let us draw near to God. Every day. Every moment. Goes on to say, let us hold unwaveringly, I'm sorry, unwaveringly to the hope that we profess. Hope in Scripture is not an attitude of the mere possibility of something happening, but it's the confident expectation. It is assured. Anticipation of something that is real. Not because of what we've done, but because of Christ. Because what Christ has done for us. The admonition for hope here is endurance. Let us hold on to the hope that we profess. I like this one. Let us spur one another on to love and good works. Love is the mark of a disciple. Love is what marks us out and makes us different from other people. And it's that love of God dwelling in us and working through us. Let us spur one another to love. To be generous and kind and compassionate. It is the mark of a disciple. Jesus said, they're going to know that you belong to me because of the love that you have for one another. Encourage one another. Be kind, be generous, be compassionate. Let us be known by our love. And finally, we're given this responsibility. Let us not forsake the regular assembling of the church. The church is referred to, we have this throughout sort of the teaching of the church and through the tradition of the church, is referred to as the ark in this world, which takes us to our heavenly home. See, you need the church as a means of growing in Christ, of growing in your knowledge of the Lord. And the church needs you. Needs you to move it forward in its mission and ministry. It is our joyful privilege as ransomed believers to gather together, to be together as God's family here in this place. So let us draw near. Let us hold on to that hope that we profess. Let us spur one another on to love and to good works. And let us not forsake the regular meeting together of the church. As believers, we are to cling to Christ and His cross. A sacrifice so deep so high, so wide, so all-sufficient must require our life and our all. No part-time faith. Not a feel-good Jesus. But a faith in Jesus that transforms us. See, God in His infinite goodness and mercy, in His love, the God of all the cosmos, stepped onto the stage to take our human history half for sin to justify us, 
to redeem us and to reconcile us. Beloved, this is good news. And He solved the everlasting problem fully in the cross. The cross where Christ suffered death and torture and isolation, betrayal and an unimaginable pain and anguish becomes for us a sign of the victory that we have. That death is conquered and sin is done away with. And we are made sons and daughters, heirs of the King. One last song, this one from Isaac Watts. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Amen. How I am happy.